And welcome. It's good to have you here listening today to a discussion about fundraising and communications for private schools, Catholic uh, high schools as well. Uh, joining us in this discussion today will be John Kaneen. John is with Fundraising and Business Development Advisors Group, Triple One. And also uh, from the marketing agency, Brand Inspiration, Michael DeRoche joining us as well. I'm Ray Andrewson. Thanks for being here and listening uh, to this uh, podcast of information with information you can use. I'll have the first question out to John here. And uh, John, I, you know so much about uh, fundraising, fundraising efforts, uh, particularly uh, in areas of private schools, Catholic schools. Um, but let's just talk for we can about Catholic schools specifically and the communications effort. Uh, how they stay in touch, how they keep their uh, alumni base together, and uh, what you know about that. <laughs> Thanks, Ray. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here. Um, well, I, I think what, what I know is this. I know it's become a lot more challenging for private schools and Catholic schools uh, to, to communi if, communicate effectively with their constituencies. You know, the competition for attention is higher than it's ever been. Uh, you know, it used to be uh, that if you were the, a graduate of a private school, that you could you know reliably count on getting your annual report and your your magazine and maybe an email and, and those would at some levels get reliably read. Well, now everybody's sending those. Every nonprofit in town is sending emails. Every nonprofit in town uh, has a social media presence. Um, you know, certainly colleges and universities have stepped up their uh, up their their marketing communications. So what we're seeing is that you know private schools are getting crowded out by the sort of broader nonprofit market uh, and, and as well as other marketing messages. So it's become more difficult, right? And, and, and that matters in a lot of ways, right? It matters uh, in terms of impacting their enrollment, in terms of you know, them getting the recognition that they need to be able to convince people to invest you know, and send their kids there. It matters in fundraising. You know, it used to be that uh, philanthropists would almost always be counted on to reliably support their alma maters, right? So if they went to a private school, you know, you could you could count on you know receiving a donation from you know from somebody who had graduated from your school. Um, you know, not so much anymore. Those philanthropists are being challenged and asked by all sorts of nonprofits, whether it's their university or the hospital or or you know uh, other nonprofits in the community. So everything's just become more competitive. Competitive to get people's attention. Competitive for the fundraising dollar. Uh, competitive to get the student to come to the school. Uh, and so what it's done is it's increased the role. Uh, of marketing and communications, you know, for schools is that, you know, that was always an important function. I would argue now that it is one of the absolutely most critical functions to keep those schools full and to keep the fundraising dollars that those schools count on flowing. You really need to have not only robust in, as in a lot of communication, but effective, good, smart communication uh, with your different constituencies. So how targeted does that need to be? Uh, because it's not just the alumni base, it's not just the students yep. uh, engaged at the present time, parents, grandparents, business owners, community. Let's talk about all the groups. Yeah, so I think that, you know, I think it needs to be very targeted. You know, you have, and you know, I'll rattle them off, I might not get all of them, but you have, you know, prospective new students, right? So that's a certain, you know, segment of the population, right? So it's, you know, parents with kids, you know, uh, if you're a high school, you know, kids in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, you know, that's certainly when that process begins for, you know, prospective students. So you have that market. You have current families, people that are enrolled in the school right now uh, and a responsibility to communicate not only things that are going on in the school, but, you know, how graduates are doing and begin to build that case for future philanthropy. 
you have recent school graduates, you know, somebody who graduates a high school and is in their first couple of years of college or even their first couple of years in their career, that's a different marketing communication segment than somebody that may have graduated from the school 15, 20, or even 30 years ago. So you have that cohort, older graduates. So, you know, I think it begins with identifying your audience, you know, and what your audiences are, uh, and then figuring out what the messaging and the goals of each of those are. You know, so for those younger parents with the kids, it's about, you know, touting the benefits of sending your kid to the school and why the school is worthy of investment. To that young alum, it's about why looking back on the experience you had here matters and begin to build those long-term connections, which hopefully result in philanthropy down the road and maybe even you sending your kid there. To those long-term graduates, it's about remember, you know, what this place meant to you and or, you know, what role was the formation you had here at our school? What role has that had in the, the person that you've become, the success you've become? So it's about identifying those segments and then figuring out what the goals are. Uh, for each segment. We'll talk a little bit more uh, in, in a minute, John, mm-hmm. but I, uh, about targeting all those uh, constituencies that you recommend are targeted. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's always not just the why to, but the how to and uh, the marketing aspect of this. And uh, Michael DeRoche, I'd like to ask you a question about that and some of the technology today to access these groups because, uh, as John just alluded to, we're bombarded with so much incoming information. Uh, And how do you cut through that uh, with brand inspiration and how do you uh, uh, cut through some of those um, messaging uh, propositions that come in so rapid fire for so many people today so that this message gets through? Right, and you know, and I thought that John did a, a great job of articulating what the audiences are and how an organization like a school should define its personas and marketing we call them personas generally and in fundraising i would assume they do as well um but really once you do define the messaging and what you want to say and what's the what's the ultimate call to action to each of those messages you have to figure out the channels they live in right so i mean i think that's the that's probably the hardest thing is you know you find it in a lot of organizations that you know, as sophisticated as an organization gets with its marketing communications and message segmentation, sometimes their channel discipline is hard to figure out, right? So the audience that, you know, the parents that have the young kids, the younger kids that are ultimately gonna to go to that school or, or are gonna be recruited to go to that school, where are they living? Where are they gonna not only listen to your message, if you could even break through the clutter of all email and digital communications like social media and other or podcasts or other channels um, where are they going to listen to it so you know you have to find that you have to define where those audiences are listening to information and then actually engaging with that information to do something about it or to learn more or whatever the case may be the second audience where uh, you know alum, alumni um, you know where are they living now are they not you are they more accustomed to getting you know uh, getting uh, absorbing information through social media and other channels and the same thing with the the older audience so i think message discipline channel discipline is the next step in that process it's so complex isn't it yeah <laughs> yeah well you know it's it's it, you know i make a joke all the time you know marketing and communications is not rocket science but you know the, I, they give us awards sometimes for <laughs> the act like it's rocket science yeah, so many people to reach and so many channels, as you mentioned, yeah. to reach them. Uh, John, you know, when we think about doing that and then you're marketing to those groups in a variety of, of ways, of course, you have to do the follow-up uh, and that always comes up. And, and, and this is also not just a logical approach, mm-hmm. you know, where you're talking to someone's sense of logic, 
reason, but it's emotional. Right. Um, the bond is very, very emotional with these schools. Yeah, it's a great point. I think the what I see in a lot of nonprofits, and then you see it in, in for-profit business, is you know sort of the statement of facts about why the organization is so great. Right, we have X number of students, and we've sent them to these colleges, and this is our graduation rate. You know, I inhabit the fundraising side for much of my career, so it's about you know these are the dollars that have been raised that have been used for scholarship, all these sort of metrics. And to be perfectly honest, I think that maybe that was okay. 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, but I see that as the baseline for entry in communications right now. That's sort of, it's been sort of commoditized. You know, the general assumption is, is that if you're out there asking for money, and if you're certainly asking for students to come here, that you do a good job, and you're gonna be able to sort of prove that in some way. You know, it's the, I think it's the price of entry for even being in the space. Not to downplay it, but I don't know that just stating, you know, your graduation rate and how many students really gets you much. What I see is the organizations that do well, certainly on fundraising, build a great narrative, a great story for why this organization is special, why what they do is unique or necessary or critical or, you know, or super important to, to the people that they serve. So if it's a school, sure, your kid's going to get a great education, is going to go to a good college. But we're also going to develop the full person, right? If it's a Catholic school, it's, we're going to develop them in, in, in our faith or in their faith. And they're, you know, they're going to be good citizens of the world. And, and here's some examples of how our kids give back and how our examples of how our kids feel compassion for their fellow man or in, in, in what you're trying to deliver. As well as we had X number of kids go to Yale and Y number of kids go to Harvard and you know, we won these sporting events. So I, I think you need to really get to the, the essence of, of why you matter. Um, and you know, for for every school, for every nonprofit, there are different reasons, right? We're saving lives, we're saving the animals, we're preserving the environment, we're educating your kid, we're educating your kid in a Catholic way. Um, but you really need to capture that. And I see a lot of marketing communications, and to be quite frank, a lot of fundraising pieces that use up a lot of real estate and therefore a lot of attention in their if they're able to get the attention of the of the recipient, a lot of their attention on the sort of statement of facts, right? 300 kids, 12% went to Ivy League, 22% went here, um, and I think that's a lost opportunity, um, yeah. Well, in uh, contemporary America at this point, if you did look at some of the recent polling about religious affiliation and religious identity, it's on a decline. It is. Uh, and it has been for a few decades right now. So that presents, in a way, a challenge, right. a contemporary marketing challenge and a contemporary development and fundraising mm -hmm. challenge. Uh, but let's talk about a very simple phrase or simple question about being Catholic and why just being Catholic, a Catholic school, today isn't enough. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's often a sensitive topic when I'm meeting with my Catholic clients. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and I don't mean to diminish the good works that were done 25 and 30 and 40 years ago, and I'm not meaning to suggest that it was easy then. Although I would probably suggest that it was easier then. You know, it used to be that if you were the Catholic parish in a particular neighborhood, that all of the Catholics came, right? You were expected to go, and your grandparents went, and your parents went, and, and you were sort of expected to go, and you went. Well, we've seen mass attendance decline, uh, you, know, uh, you know, year over year, significantly through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and now certainly well into the 2000s. Um, you know, for a variety of reasons, whether it's people losing faith and just sort of moving on from religion, but often moving to 
different denominations, right? And, and sampling different churches or different uh, faith experiences and, 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 and making a buyer's decision, you know, a, 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 you know, a decision that we had a better experience at this church than we did at the church that we're quote unquote supposed to go to. So that's where we're going to go. And you wouldn't have heard that conversation 30 years ago. You know, my grandparents would never have had that conversation. My grandparents went to the parish that they were supposed to go to because it was their neighborhood. Um, and, and, you know, I think modern newer parents, parents of today are not making those same decisions. The same would apply to, you know, to private schools or Catholic schools is it used to be in some cases good enough to be the Catholic high school serving this community. And I still think it's one of the unique selling propositions for our Catholic high schools. Their Catholicity is an advantage. It's something unique. It's something that they need to talk about and celebrate. But in and of itself, what we're seeing is it's not reason enough for people to send their kids there, right? Is that, you know, that might be a benefit on a list of, of good things. It certainly appears on the list, but it has to be the other stuff. How you're, you know, as well as, how are you forming the child? What does it being a Catholic school actually mean? So, okay, they're gonna learn some religion, that's great, but what does it mean to the end product? What does my kid feel and look like and sound like and who is, who are he or she at the end of senior year as a result of you being a Catholic school that they wouldn't otherwise be. Um, so it's the, the essence of what, what being Catholic means, um, I think needs to be communicated more than simply stating, or even emphatically stating, we are Catholic. I see there's a big distinction there, uh, as you point out, but from a marketing perspective too, uh, we'd go back a few decades to Levy's rye bread. And the phrase for Levy's rye bread in their marketing is you don't have to be Jewish to eat Levy's. <laughs> and you don't have to be Catholic to attend a Catholic school. So that message sometimes is grossly misunderstood in the public. So Michael, how do you, how do you make that message real? And how do you keep those who have graduated, the alumni base for many generations who are not Catholic, who graduated from many of our um, uh, boys and girls Catholic schools, very loyal, alumni, uh, how do we reach them and continue to keep them as part of the network? Right, I think, um, I think it goes to a blended effort with marketing and fundraising or marketing and development at the school with how, they, how the program is built around consistent communication to those alumni going forward to continually remind them, if you don't want to take on that message directly, the message of, you know, um, you know, yes, you're not Catholic, but, you know, the school is still important and it formed you to be this, you know, polished professional or polished human being. Um, I think, you know, when I do a lot of reading on just retention programs, so in for-profit, in non-profit, in the development side with alumni of sorts, in this case, the thing that always sounds, and when I do read research on it, the thing that always comes up in my reading is that People just want to be communicated to effectively well and consistently with meaningful content, right? So if they're, if, if I'm an alumni and you know, I've been you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years removed from the school and I'm having, I feel like I still have part of the experience. That's one thing, that's the most important thing in branding in my opinion is that it's, the experience doesn't end when you stop using the product, service, or solution. For, you know, or, or you know what I mean? It, it can't, right? Because then 
you're never going to build more brand loyalty down the road for the next generation of someone that wants to use. John and I were just having this conversation about Tide, right? I mean, he uses Tide because his family uses Tide, sorry, John, because it's on his PayPal list, right? But, you know, and someone, you know, I mean, and, and back in the day, someone used Tide because their mother used it and then I used it and it's just, but the brand loyalty, it's just about the experience. You had a good experience with Tide and you kept going with it. And I feel the same way in retention programs for alumni and donor relationships down the road is that if you build a program that is is genuine, that keeps telling the story about what the education system did for kids now and for the future, I think that goes a long way in the brand. How about if we talk about the nitty gritty of fundraising yeah. at oh. this point, and let's get right into that if we can too. Um, there's a lot of ways to raise money. And we talked about the various channels, the portals, the places that you can go to donate, the events, uh, on and on. But uh, how does a Catholic high school uh, raise money in this modern day and age? It's a good question. Uh, by working really, really hard. You know, <laughs> I, I think that the reason we let in as much talk about marketing, communications, and branding, and storytelling as we did is because it's critical. It needs to be done right. So you got to get that done. Um, you know, we're in a political season and, and I don't want, you know, it's a lot easier to market a candidate that has a great story, it has a great order, and has a great vision, right? And it's not to say that candidates that don't have those can't win or can't be marketed, but it's a lot easier when the person you're marketing, you know, helps you every day. And, and that's how I see branding, marketing, communications, you know, for, for schools. It starts with having a great story, knowing who you are, knowing why you matter, knowing why you're essential toward developing this next generation of kids, and truly believing and communicating that belief that this is the best place for, for your kid. And, and we're, and we're going to demonstrate and show you why. So assuming that that's in place and not easy to get there. Um, you know, you're looking at a couple of tactics, right? So there's, you know, this sort of retail fundraising that most of us interact with every day, events, right? So, you know, whether it's the auctions or whether it's the galas and, and you know, a lot of schools, you know, have very robust event schedules. Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with events. I think that they're great for building connection, giving people experiences and bringing people to campus. I think they can be at best average at raising meaningful dollars. Um, and they use up an awful lot of time and resources on the development staff. So uh, I think that they're important to do, but I think it's important to have a balanced event calendar. Uh, and when I come into a nonprofit relationship and I see them constantly adding events, what I see is a development office that's struggling, trying to figure out what's the latest, greatest new trick that we can pull off that's going to raise us a bunch of money. And it puts you on a very brutal treadmill that's extraordinarily hard to sustain. I think it's about getting a couple of key signature events that people truly like, that give people a great experience, which helps build the brand of the organization. And yes, it raises some meaningful money for the organization. If it doesn't meet sort of all of those criteria, I would do away with the events. Uh, but event fundraising, you know, is, is important. And then, you know, sort of on the retail side is the annual fund, right, which is where a lot of us participate. These are, whether it's student callers calling recent alum trying to get their credit card for a $25 gift, it's the outbound emails, it's the things you see around Giving Tuesday, you make a quick gift, be $50, $100, we're trying to raise $100,000 for Giving Tuesday. It's the direct mail piece to current parents, past parents, recent and past alum, all critical. Could raise real dollars in an annual fund. And the beauty of the annual fund is it's the point of the entry to real philanthropy for, 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 for big donors. It's the way to begin to cultivate people 
begin to build up that sort of muscle memory that, yeah, I give to, you know, I'm a graduate of a place in town here called Hammond Hall. I give to Hammond Hall annually. And that's sort of a place that I give to. Over time, that should move toward major gifts, right? So the annual fund becomes the, the training ground, if you will, or the farm team for future major gift fundraising. So you see somebody that gives, you know, over five years or seven years or 10 years regularly, even at a modest level, it's about building those relationships. Who is this person? Why do they support us so consistently? What are they interested in? You know, are we demonstrating interest in them? You know, are we showing them that we not only appreciate their support, um, but we're interested in who they've become, maybe inviting them back to speak to kids on campus, you know, strengthening those ties. So as they grow in their career, perhaps as they grow in their wealth, and as they grow in their philanthropy, that you, you create an opportunity to eventually solicit major gifts, which in fundraising is really where the fun begins. You know, these are the, you know, major gifts are measured differently for, you know, some organizations that might be five or 10,000. For Yale and Harvard, it's 100 million or, or 10 million or 5 million. You know, for a typical Catholic high school or typical high school, you know, a major gift, you know, would be certainly in that sort of $15,000, $25,000 plus category. You know, it's very much uh, a, a very solid major gift, you know, right on up to a million dollars. And then finally, you have plan giving, which you know, all plan giving is, 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 a, is a gift intention made today that will happen sometime in the future. That future often being after death, you know, so it's a part of my estate, it's left in my will. Or that future being when I hit a certain age in retirement, maybe give you a portion of my IRA, but I make that intention now. Um, there's some tax advantage usually that accrues to the donor when they make that intention now for a future gift. And, and plan giving uh, has extraordinary potential. It sometimes just takes a little while to realize that actual potential for the nonprofit. So let's talk about the ask. Uh, which is so critical and crucial. Yep. And uh, anyone who has not worked in development might be very surprised to know that uh, once you board onto a development uh, uh, program or mm -hmm. uh, an office, there's money out there. Oh, yeah. And it's surprising what you can actually find. And among alumni base, there are many, many um, wealthy and very well-established and also socially committed uh, and grateful uh, donors. And let's talk about how you, you make that major ask because it does require relationship building first it does and that's and that's a critical you know one of the having wealthy graduates you know is not enough to get you to the ask it, it helps <laughs> it's nice to have that you have to have people with capacity um, that have the ability to make the kind of gifts that we're hoping for I mean it starts there um, but, you know, I've been in a lot of organizations being like, do you realize that someone's so graduated from our school and you look them up and you find out that they're a billionaire, and, but they've never given and they've never been to campus and you haven't heard from them in 40 years. It's going to be extraordinarily difficult to get a significant gift from that person just because they happen to have a billion dollars. It's interesting, but it's really hard. I would get far more excited about somebody who has a million dollars that's given regularly to the annual fund that's come to reunion that maybe received an award for you know their great football achievement 25 years ago, I'd be far more enamored with them as a prospect than I would be with a billionaire, even though they have significantly more capacity, who's never given or shown an interest. So you know you have to do your homework. You have to build toward major gifts, build toward them by having effective communications, by continuing to earn the right to matter in their minds, and eventually earn your way onto their philanthropy list. And then once you're on their philanthropy list, maybe through the annual fund, it's about strengthening those relationships. What are they interested in? 
Are they impact donors? You know, are they grateful donors? Did the school give them a scholarship? You know, when their parents couldn't afford it, and now they've had some success, so they want to give back out of a sense of gratitude. Or maybe they're impact donors. Maybe they look at their school and think, "Boy, I really want inner city kids to have the same opportunities that I did. If I make this investment, I want to see a tangible impact." So it's understanding who those philanthropists are. And you can only achieve that understanding by personal connection, meeting with them, visiting with them, and building relationships with them. Well, I'd like to ask in terms of the operation, uh, Michael, if you can too, as John pointed out, how to do it on different levels. Uh, for major gifting, obviously, that's not a macro uh, marketing event no. at all because it's a handful of people. But for an annual fund, annual giving, it is. Yeah, I mean, and I think that, you know, you can do a combination of the things these days, right? I mean, I think that. I'm a firm believer that an annual appeal with a cultivated list or a very good list could have a great direct mail component, right? Letter-based or, you know, cases, case for support. But I think that storytelling through video and how easy to do video these days is a great secondary component. So, you know, if I'm, you know, if you send out to your list a, a, a letter-based campaign with, uh, you know, a case for support for that, you know, the case for the theme for the annual campaign, the end of year campaign, and then on the social, you invite them to your social channels or to a special landing page where there's a first, more of the story. Another, you know, in this case, maybe it's a ex-student story or the students of today's story or whatever, and then. You know, then the social media channels pick that up as well, um, and then you know, obviously the third component would be a secondary. If you have their email addresses, and, you know, to do a third touch on an email program. But I think integrating two things. One, I think as many touches you can get, four to six touches in a campaign, if you can get that many, um, are is important because I, I think that the consistency and redundancy of message is the only way you're going to break through. I'm not saying that you can't get money on a first touch annual appeal letter, you can. But I think that if you want to expand on the story, the storytelling, you can only do so much in a letter and a case for support. But if you can expand on the story through video or other channels, um, tax-based campaigns and, and stuff like that, I think it's important. And then the second part of that, I think, is that you know, you're know you going to expose the, the, the mission and the vision of the school to other people using other channels, right? You know, the people share it and like it and comment on it and then expose yourself to people that weren't even in your uh, wheelhouse. Well, there's the, of course, the annual campaign. There's always that campaign that comes out of the development office and we've talked about the major gifts as, as well. Um, but how about we're going to build a new football stadium or we're gonna build a new wing, uh, you know, or maybe dormitories or uh, so many other um, aspects, you know, of, of school infrastructure that needs to be upgraded and expanded as class sizes change and contemporary needs change as well. That capital campaign. Yes. How do we get going? My favorite, my, my favorites. You know, a capital, you know, it, when you see a successful capital campaign in an organization, you see an organization that has figured out how to market and communicate with its donors, how to attract and retain those donors, how to tell its story, and an organization that's developed real relationships with people of capacity and philanthropic interest in their organization. And this capital campaign is the opportunity to harvest all of that fruit, built so, you know, often over many years, right? So how do you get ready for a capital campaign? You know who you are, why you matter. You convince people or remind them of those things and get them to believe it, right? Yeah, you're right, my alma mater really did 
make me who I am. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be who I am. They touched me in a certain way that allows me to be who I am today. So I, as that 30-year graduate, I, I fundamentally believe that. And somewhere along the lines, you affected that transaction where I began to give to your organization. And then somewhere along those lines, somebody, the president of the school, the development director, the major gifts officer, got to know me a little bit as an individual and what I'm interested in. So is he a sports donor or is he a gratitude donor or a scholarship donor? What's, what, are, what are their interests? What really makes them tick? Are they a recognition donor? They want to have their name splashed on things. And often enough, donors are a mix of a lot of those different things. Um, and when those pieces are in place, then you're generally speaking ready for a capital campaign. And really what a capital campaign is, is a very intense major gifts effort directed toward a specific goal or set of goals, right? We're going to build the new gymnasium, you know, we're in a big school that might be a major campus renovation or adding a new theater to something. Often we're seeing now is major efforts toward uh, endowment into scholarships, right? A recognition that it's increasingly difficult for parents to pay for this tuition that, you know, to supercharge the endowment that would spin off money to underwrite the cost of tuition is becoming increasingly popular and we're seeing capital campaigns. So it doesn't always have to be a building, although it's a little easier sometimes when it is. Uh, so it's it's really the, the maturation of a fundraising development marketing communications office that allows you to have the confidence and courage and to be perfectly honest, the right to go out and ask donors to make some of the largest gifts they've ever made to your organization over a relatively compact period of time. And often in a capital campaign, that is kind of how the ask is phrased, is that, you know, Ray, you've been very generous to us for many years. We appreciate your regular support of the annual fund. And boy, thank you for bidding on all those auction items all these years. We're asking you to consider making the largest gift you've ever made to our organization over the next five years to help affect this terrific change that we need here, this new addition or this underwriting and scholarships. To be able to ask someone to do the biggest and largest thing that they've ever done for your organization, you have to have done all of that homework and all of that investment in the relationship and been a careful steward of your relationship in, in, in all the years leading up to that ask. Um, and then, of course, it helps to have you know, some wealthy donors. <laughs> <laughs> that certainly always happens in every, every uh, area of life, I think. Uh, let's just get back to the planned gifting, if we can, for just a second, too, because it, it, as part of building that new art gallery or theater or gymnasium. Um, if we don't do a capital campaign within the school, you can also have something endowed. And with naming rights, uh, for example. Um, so let's talk about the, the planned gift itself and uh, that process and having that conversation. And then three different areas we want to touch on, the charitable uh, bequest and uh, uh, charitable gift annuity and <laughs> charitable remainder trust. I mean, there are different ways to do this. Right. Yeah, so I mean, plan giving, you know, it's interesting. It's probably the single biggest untapped resource for most of the nonprofits that we talk to, especially in sort of the private school level. Um, you know, and, 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 and I'm sort of speaking with a broad brush, but, you know, largely due to the fact that often enough needs are immediate for most nonprofits, you know, in a lot of private schools. You know, we have to immediately fund tuition or we need to immediately build this new gym, immediately within three years, five years, ten years. Um, annual fund is immediate to pay for bills. So plan giving comes later. So it's a little bit less exciting sometimes and often it gets overlooked. But plan giving really is the culmination of all of this, right? It's, you know, you have to have the relationship, the trust, the, you know, the people that make plan gifts are believers and you have, you have to have earned the right for them to be a believer and done all of the things right. But what makes it so magical is 
you know, often enough it comes upon death, you know, or it comes upon, you know, latent career retirement. When that particular donor has achieved all they really need to achieve for their own personal success, right? And, you know, they have the homes they want, they've paid for their kids' college, they've left money in their wills and estates for their grandkids to subsidize. And, you know, and they're looking back on their life thinking, you know, well, you know, what, what else, what more can I do? I've been terrifically blessed you know, to have this amazing career or all this good fortune or to have guessed right in the market way back when. Uh, and then they're looking back and thinking, you know, what's my legacy going to be? And they don't have immediate needs anymore. You know, and or they may be dead when this gift comes along. So they have really no needs and they've taken care of their. And that's where we see some extraordinary gifts, you know, and I've had people, you know, I had a recent planned gift where a person had invested in their IRA for many, many years. Uh, and just came to the organization and said, I don't need it at this point. I've just reached a point in my career where I, I don't paid into it and employ it. I, I don't need it. Uh, therefore, I'd like to give it to the organization upon my death, all of it, you know, everything that's in it. Uh, and it turned out to be a seven-figure, you know, a seven-figure bequest, which is a remarkable gift and three or four or even five times larger than any gift that family had ever made to the organization. So um, it's, it's the culmination of doing a lot of things right but it's about educating the donor too, right? And you speak to these different vehicles. It's about communicating to the donor that there are a lot of ways to make these gifts, whether it's a charitable remainder trust or maybe just a straight bequest. There are a lot of vehicles that, that working in concert with their financial planners, um, they can arrange a gift that maybe has, you know, nominal impact on their life right now, maybe significant tax benefit to them, but also very, very large benefit to the nonprofit in the future. Or it may help their tax you know, positioning in a particular year or upon the sale of a business to make a planned gift today, um, and, you know, through maybe a charitable remainder trust and accrue some, you know, some immediate tax benefit, but leave an extraordinary gift to the organization. And of course, a lot of that ties in with naming rights and the opportunity to have your names on scholarships, you know, which speaks to that sort of legacy. This gift will go on in perpetuity recognition and what's interesting in the last five or ten years we're seeing fewer donors name things after themselves and more donors name things after their parents and and loved ones which is kind of fascinating and you're seeing it among the mega wealthy as well um that they may even still have the same last name so maybe they get double value there but we're seeing some very very large donors at universities you know naming things after their parents which is fascinating you know and their parents may have been deceased 50 years ago or 40 years ago um, and, uh, and, you know, which I think is kind of cool. And it speaks to how emotional giving can be yeah. and, and just how important it is. Here's a person who may be 80 years old looking at a life of extraordinary accomplishment, making the largest gift they've ever made to a nonprofit. And what do they want? They want recognition for their parents who've been deceased for 30 years because they were so formative in making them who they were. That's the magic of being in the development business is to be able to facilitate that sort of transaction. Not only does the university or the private school benefit, but the donor benefits as well. Well, in just a couple of minutes that we have left here, I'd just like uh, some brief closing statements from both of you in terms of what people need to know uh, with respect to fundraising. We've touched on, of course, the communications aspect. But, of course, again, you need to market it. Yeah. Brand I, inspiration, Michael. Um, right. I mean, I think that my, my, the advice I offer a lot of folks is people get caught up in organizations, and, and we call it, paralysis of marketing, right? I mean, there's two types of marketing communication directors generally, right? There's ones that plan really, really well and they may do a 12 month marketing program or you know, 16 month or eight month. 
and they want everything perfect before they execute or go to the market or keep a program moving on. And then there's the, the market communication directors that respect all that and love all that and want to do it as well, but that they know that their team has to consistently, as John started this whole thing off with, they have to be out there communicating. They have to be building programs and personas and uh, uh, you know different channel discipline. And so I, you know, what I would say is you know you got to test you. You got to trust your. If you think you have a great mission, vision, uh, message construction as part of your program, that put trust in it. Go all in. Do the video. Do the social media. Do a podcast. Do emails. Do landing pages. Do just do it. You know, don't get stuck in waiting to make sure that everything's perfect because chances are, I mean, it's never perfect. And John, uh, just to uh, once again recap what you'd like to uh, highlight from our discussion uh, as it pertains to fundraising. Yeah, I think, you know, I often think of marketing communications, fundraising, you know, I, I'm someone who's always wanted to be uh, fitter than I am for a variety of reasons. And, you know, I think probably the worst thing to, to motivate me to be fitter would be to put a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger from the mid-80s on my mirror and say, that's who I want to be. I'm going to be him. I look nothing like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You can't see me here on this podcast. Um, but, you know, the steps to become Arnold Schwarzenegger you know, start with, you know, getting up and going for a walk and then turning that walk into a short run and that short run into a longer run and lifting that lightweight to a heavier weight. And, and that's development, right? Everybody wants the million dollar gift. Everybody wants the big bequest. Everybody wants the $50 million capital campaign. Everybody wants the full school. Um, we, but, but everybody wants to be Arnold Schwarzenegger circa 1986. But in order to get there, we have to do a lot of the little steps over and over and over again and keep getting better at them, right? So better at telling our story, better at knowing why we matter, better at donor cultivation, better at donor retention, better at, uh, at, at connecting the donor to the organization, better at understanding what motivates the donor to continue to support us. And if you get better at that, then their giving will increase. And then if they're giving increases, then they're, then they're ready for the plan gift. Um, so it's, a, it's an incremental process. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, I think it, you know. I think there's there's you know there's fits and starts to it, um, but I think it's about understanding where you want to go and what what it takes to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, and then reverse engineering all the steps it takes to get there, and just trying to do a little bit better at each of those steps, you know, month over month over month, you know, year over year. We've learned a lot. Thank you, John Kaneem, Triple One Fundraising Business Development Advisors. Thank you. And uh, also Michael DeRoche from Brand Inspiration. Wake up your marketing. Thank you, gentlemen, as well. I'm Ray Andrewson, and we thank you for listening. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Ray.